Well, good morning and a warm welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Christmas is nearly here. What a wonderful season it is and so much more when we consider the magnitude of the events that we celebrate. God implementing his plan for mankind, his rescue plan, and arriving in the most vulnerable of conditions, a baby in the care of humans. We're led to consider what kind of king is this? Well, over today and over these next few weeks, let's take time to reflect and wonder at this question and the events which answer it. Today we'll be looking forward to Duncan, our pastor here, bringing us a message from Isaiah, which looked forward to the events which we see in history. Now, if you've got your Bibles handy, we're going to look at God's Word. Janet is going to pop up here and read it for us today. Just while Janet's preparing, let's just pray. Lord God, as we prepare to hear your word, grant us minds to understand and hearts to be inspired by what we receive today. Amen. The reading is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7, and I'm reading from the ESV. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Oh, good morning and welcome to... Uh, welcome to church, and thank you so much for joining with us today. We're, we're coming to this passage of Scripture, and I think at least two of those verses are, are quite well known. They, they come up at this time of year. Sometimes we even sing them. Uh, but you see that these verses come in, in this bigger passage that, that Janet has read for us, and it's got some very important uh, points to get across to us from God's Word here. And the thing that really stands out to me is this, this language of darkness in these verses. Darkness, it's, it's a powerful thing, darkness. And that's strange, isn't it? If you think about it, what is, what is darkness? It is the absence of light. And for being 
nothing more than the lack of something. Darkness is powerful. It's surely one of the most common fears among children. It's negative connotations we know well, don't we? We associate it with deceitful and underhanded behavior. Someone wanting to keep things out of the light, they hide it away in the darkness. It's one of those powerful metaphors, crops up in all parts of life. I remember a prominent politician being described as having something of the night about him. It was saying that he's in darkness, it was powerful. The greatest enemies are those who are on the dark side. When someone has a fall from grace, it's because we've discovered they had a darker side to them. And even if someone is ignorant, then, or they lack knowledge on something, they're, they're said to be what? In darkness. It's a powerful image in the Bible too. And that picture of, of darkness and light It appears in this passage, and it's not used lightly here. You see, we're reading from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a a prophet, a messenger of God, who was sent to the nation of Israel some 700 years before Jesus Christ. And particularly in the first half of this book of Isaiah, the prophet delivers messages from God that were troubling for God's people. God warns His people that they are going to be plunged into ruin. A foreign superpower is going to sweep into the land and overrun it. Um, In the verses just before this, it's described as a time of distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish. They are going to be thrust into thick darkness. But they need to see that this ruin is just going to be the fruit of something that's already happened. God wants His people to see that before this disaster comes, they're already in darkness. They just haven't noticed it yet. They're already in darkness. They had turned their back on God. They'd stopped trusting Him. You read these early chapters of Isaiah. This was God's nation. And do you know what was happening there? The poor people were being oppressed. There was injustice. People were taking bribes to give false testimony. They were neglecting the worship of God. And though it might have seemed to most people in the nation at the time that it didn't make any difference, God sends His prophet Isaiah to tell them that he has seen everything. And the place where that sort of darkness leads is only to ruin. Now, for most of us, there are parts of the Bible, I'm going to say for all of us, I include myself in here anyway, for, for all of us, there are parts of the Bible that we find difficult. And I think for many people, it's the, I guess we could say, the dark parts of the Bible that we find difficult when there's these pronouncements of judgment that's to come, we wonder, why would God speak like this? Why would God speak to His people in this harsh way? Well, as a rule, if you ever feel like that, the secret is to keep reading, okay? Keep reading. You will, I guarantee you, eventually 
get to the reason why. God never tells His people that judgment is coming just so He can show them that He's good at foretelling events. And He certainly never tells His people that judgment is coming because He wants to just make them uncomfortable and it's just spiteful. No, God tells of judgment to come so that those who would hear about it would repent. That is, that they would just turn their lives around, stop heading away from God, turn back to God, and find mercy. So, I guess maybe one of the most famous examples is, is the prophet Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh, and he was told, tell them, in 40 days' time, this place is going to be destroyed. That was his message. Now, did God send that messenger just to make them have an uncomfortable 40 days before they get destroyed? No, it was so that the people would turn away from their sinfulness, turn to God, and find mercy, and that is exactly what they did. And this is what you find in the Bible, that where there is this threat of judgment, there is always, alongside it, this message of hope. And Isaiah 9 is an example of that hope coming into this horrible message of judgment, in comes this hope, a message about God's promised hope. And what a wonderful certainty is delivered here. Look at how this starts in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What's being described here is a complete turnaround. They were in darkness. They were in the absence of light. And here is the message that light will shine upon them. It's expressed another way in verse 3. If darkness was a, a time of distress, a time of anguish, what would it mean to be in the light? Uh, halfway down verse 3, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. As two further pictures are introduced here to speak about what it will mean for God's people to be in the light. The first one really speaks to this nation as a nation of farmers. The joy of the harvest, it'll be like that. That's the kind of joy that will come. I mean, for them, the joy of the harvest was genuine. I mean, if there's no harvest, then, well, all of your hard work in the last year has been for nothing, but more than that, if there's no harvest, you've no way to feed your family. You can bet in the 8th century BC, in this agrarian community, they rejoiced when the harvest came in. Pure joy. Or, says Isaiah here, it's like how glad soldiers are when they divide the spoil that they get from their victory. That's at the end of verse 3. Just think of it, it's, it's such a joyous thing because of the hard, hard slog, the horrors and the brutality of war. When they give way to victory, there is joy. Now, I need to brace you for something here. Because Isaiah isn't going away to explain for us 
a series of things that if God's people do, then it will bring them to this great utopia of joy. Uh, we had a budget in Scotland this week. And any time a budget is presented, it usually paints a picture of the bright future that we can all expect as a result of these measures that are coming into place. Um, so this week we're told the vision for the future of Scotland is that because of this budget, we can look forward to a fairer, a greener, a more prosperous future. If we just plot the right course, we'll get there. I mean, that's how human beings think. Now, maybe we will if we're running a country. I don't know. But when it comes to relating to God, we need to dispense with that way of thinking. Isaiah's not going to let us think like that. The mess that God's nation was in was a spiritual mess. Could all be traced back to their broken relationship with God. And throughout this passage, there's only one source for the solution, and it is in God Himself. This passage is all about what God is going to do. The message doesn't come to the people and say, tidy yourself up, introduce this policy. No, this is entirely about what God is going to do. These verses are a meditation on what God does to bring His people out of darkness and into light. I mean, let me show you this. Verse 3, addressing God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And then verses 4 and 5, we're told what the Lord will do for His people. Um, you notice that verse 4, 5, and 6, they all start with the word for. This is the explanation of what's coming. So, um, the, the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, have broken. And so, when it, every time you see that word for here, you've got the explanation. So, he's going to bring them from darkness to light, from, from despair to great joy, well, why will that be? Well, because for, first of all, verse 4, he will break the power of the oppressor. He will break the power of the oppressor. This picture actually picks up on some elements of Israel's past. Um, it picks up on the, the elements of, of times when they were enslaved. Think of their enslavement in Egypt before God used Moses to rescue them. The yoke of their burden, that's the kind of language, the staff on their shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. But actually the last line of verse 4 is significant too. You, God, have broken all of those things as on the day of Midian. Uh, we might not, uh, probably haven't instinctively spotted that, but this is a reference back to the time of Gideon, when the people were oppressed by the Midianites, God raised up a man called Gideon to be judge over Israel, to free them from the oppressor. And so Gideon, he did what you would expect. He amassed an army to fight them. And I think the army was something like 32,000 men. And God says to Gideon, no, 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 that's far too many. And whittles the men down to 300. 
And in the end, it wasn't even the 300 who won the battle. All they did was blow trumpets. And the Lord caused the Midianites to fall into confusion and slay themselves. This is, this is the echo that's being reheard here in this message from Isaiah. That they will be rescued from the oppressor, and it is God who will do the rescuing. And then there's another description of this move from darkness to light. So we see verse 4, God will break the power of the, the oppressor. And in verse 5, we're told that he will bring an end to war. And you see from the language of verse 5 that it's a decisive dealing with it, as if it will be removed forever. It's never coming back. Every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the hope that God has already promised lies ahead for His people. Listen to these words from Isaiah 2. God shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They won't need these weapons anymore. We'll use them for some other purpose. They'll never learn war anymore. The message that God's people struggled to take in was just how deep these problems were. They saw defeat and oppression at the hands of of the enemy as a military problem, as not having a strong enough king. And so God sent these prophets to tell them that the core problem is not your military discipline. It's a spiritual problem. It's the problem of sin. Turning your back on God, trusting in almost anything else but Him. And in the life of Israel, that meant trusting even statues of false gods, trusting in their lust and craving for wealth. Trusting in what it would and the strength they would get from just looking like other nations. And for Israel, it was a disaster. And friends, this is the greatest problem the world still has. This is the greatest problem, is this problem of turning our backs on God. And I know to some that might sound like a strange thing to say at a time like this, maybe even an insensitive thing to say, Maybe, sure, of course, it's important to think about God, but we do have some pretty big problems to deal with, don't you see? But it's true. Actually, regardless of what is going on all around us, this remains the biggest problem we face. And all of these metaphors that Isaiah has used, they are not too severe at all to describe this problem. You see this every day. It's not just that sometimes we do things that are selfish and, well, occasionally we, we, we ignore God, I suppose. No, it's, it's deeper than that. We have to do it. We find ourselves powerless against our selfishness. We're powerless against wanting to be our own God. 
This is not the sort of thing that we can just make a New Year's resolution, change our daily routine, and that will be it sorted. No, there's something that is deeply wired in us that causes us to turn away from our Creator. We are enslaved to it. It's like it has placed this yoke of a burden on our shoulders. It is a rod in the hand of the oppressor. And we need God to break it. The Bible teaches us that this enslavement is a, is a spiritual battle as well. If you were with us last week, we were thinking about this, how God's enemy, the devil, attacks human beings. And there's something logical about that. Human beings are made in the image of God, and so God's enemy attacks anything that has His image on it. He seeks to destroy us. And on our own, our enslavement to sin is evidence that day by day by day, we are losing this spiritual battle. This is what it means to be in darkness. And there's not one of us that is exempt from this darkness. But Isaiah's message is a message of hope, and we mustn't forget that. But if this is how severe the darkness is, I wonder then, if God can make light shine into that kind of darkness, the kind of darkness that disregards Him, the kind of darkness that hates Him, then this must be some impressive plan that God has in place. It must be a show of strength from the almighty creator of the universe. How can you be sure that God will reverse this miserable darkness? Let's see it. Let's see this strong plan that God has. Verse 6, here it is. For to us a child is born. Yeah, we read it correctly. For to us a child is born. This is God's plan. This is the glorious message that we especially remember at this time of year, but that we celebrate all year round. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that God's promised hope comes in a child. God's promised hope comes in a child. This is some kid, to say the least. Why would the arrival of a child be the hope that we're waiting for? Well, let me point out what's said about him here. The first thing I want you to see that's stated very clearly is that this child is divine. That is, this child is God. At the end of verse 6, we're told that this child will be called certain things, and we're uh, given four titles that the child has, uh, the child will be given. Wonderful Counselor is the first. And we might think that, well, does this mean that he will grow up to be very wise? He's a good counselor. He gives wise counsel. Um, yes, of course. But it's actually that word wonderful that is more significant than the word counselor. Wonderful. Because that word wonderful is a word that is used to describe what God does. Let me give you a few excerpts 
from other parts of the Bible. In Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Same words. Psalm 77, you are the God who works wonders. Psalm 119, your testimonies are wonderful. And later on, Isaiah 25, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. This is a word that comes up again and again to speak about what God does. And this child, what will he be called? Wonderful Counselor. This Counselor is the Lord. And if you're not convinced by that, then the next title seals it, doesn't it? He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Mighty God. Nothing like this had ever happened before. The wonderful God who is over all things will be born as a child. And of course, who else but God could be an everlasting father? We see that not only is this child divine, this child is the divine ruler, the divine ruler. And this language is all over these verses, isn't it? A big emphasis on how this child will bear the weight of the government, the weight of government on his shoulder. In the days of King David, God promised to David that one of his offspring would arise who would sit on, the, on his throne forever. Here he is, this child who will be born. He will take David's throne. But unlike, uh, this is in verse 7, on the throne of David and, his, and over his kingdom. But unlike David, and unlike all the others who sat on that throne before him, he will not fail. This child will not preside over a kingdom of wickedness and idolatry. No, his reign will be marked out by these qualities, by peace, justice, righteousness. Those are the words that Isaiah uses to describe it. Peace, righteous, peace justice, and righteousness. And what else would you expect from the ruler who is the prince of peace? But the hope that is promised here is in the duration of this kingdom. I suppose every country has a golden era that they perhaps look back on. It depends on your age, what you think that golden era is. We look back and we think, well, that, that was a season of prosperity. That was a season of progress. That was a season of peace. That was a season when our nation really spoke up for what was right. But the kingdom that God rules over does not deal in seasons. It goes on forever. There will be no end to the peace. Justice and righteousness will be what is established in God's kingdom now and forevermore. Now this, I think, is what we yearn for. I mean, this is why people do yearn for those good old days, because we want things to be better than they are. 
And I say confidently today that socialism won't get you there. I say just as confidently that nationalism won't get you there. And just as confidently that capitalism won't get you there. And everything that falls in between, in case you think I've missed something out. But here, God offers us that hope. God offers us that kind of nation, that kind of kingdom, and it is all wrapped up in a child. Fast forward some years. One day, a young girl was told that she was going to give birth to a son. The unusual messenger said this to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Where had she heard that before, I wonder? Isaiah 9, for example. This promised hope that God gave to his people in Isaiah's day was realized in the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the Son who was given, the Son of God, no less, come to bring light into darkness. Of course, Every Jew knew this promise made through Isaiah. They'd been taught it since, well, since as long as they could remember. But for most of them in Mary's day, they had come to expect that this invasion of light into the darkness would be this immediate, powerful, evident show of might on God's part that it would be a mighty liberation from oppression. And yet, this is how the light came into the darkness. This child who was laid in a manger, which is a, an animal's feeding trough. No recognized status. Rejected by those in authority and in fact, a regional king sought to have him killed. And this continued, and only continued as he grew up, until we read in the Gospels that he was arrested, beaten, nailed on a cross to die. And I guess when you think about it in those terms, it seems as if maybe the darkness only got darker. I mean, literally, as Jesus died on the cross, the land, we're told, was shrouded in darkness. In the middle of the day, shrouded in darkness for three whole hours. Is this really what was promised? Well, dawn broke when Jesus rose from the dead, revealing that this truly was the Prince of Peace who had died in the place of sinners who had borne the penalty they deserve so that all who trust in him are brought out of darkness, out of enslavement, out of lostness, out of the battle and brought to God 
who is pure light. I think it is worth saying that those promises given through Isaiah were to God's people Israel, to the Jewish nation, and it's a, it's a proper question to ask of it then, is this hope only for Jews? Is this just a Jewish hope that's offered here? Well, look back at our text again in Isaiah 9. What is it that God is doing in verse 3? He's multiplying the nation. What is it we're told in verse 7? We're told that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. God is expanding his people, growing his kingdom. This is a savior, not just for those who are within the the geographical border of Israel, not just for those who are ethnic Jews. It is one that has, has spread out to all sorts of people from all nations, from all backgrounds, with all kinds of baggage. Even here in Bankery, we can say these words in verse 6, to us, yes, to us a child is born. When the angels appeared to the shepherds out on the hills outside Bethlehem, shepherds who were not the most respected people in society, I mean, they slept out in the open air. But the angel could say even to them, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I'm here to tell you that this is the message that still resounds throughout the world. And we want to resound in this building and from this building is that unto you is born a Savior, Christ the Lord a personal Savior to you who will bring light into the darkness, into the darkness of your own life, the darkness of your own sinful heart. He will bring the light of true eternal life as God by His Holy Spirit transforms you. And you will then, and only then, through faith in Jesus, find what you were made for, to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This promised hope is needed now more than ever for most of us. Our world is full of darkness. Even in our most civilized of countries, we are still seeing the darkness of people trafficking, of horrendous child abuse, of abortion, of record numbers of drugs deaths, suicides in young men, injustice, cancel culture, hypocrisy. These are all markers of the darkness that exists. And yet even that, even those things, even those great seemingly unsolvable darknesses will one day give way to the light of the rule of Jesus Christ. Jesus has risen. Jesus reigns in heaven, awaiting the day when he will return. And he will complete what he has started. This 
rule of peace, justice, and righteousness that is promised here will be a reality when he returns to rule over all. His rule will become the new normal, and that forever. Every injustice will be put right. Every hurt that you carry will be comforted. Every tear that you shed will be dried. And the only thing, the only thing that could bring us out of that darkness and into that hope-filled, light-filled future is the child that was born. The child who was born to die in the place of sinners. The child who was born to die and be raised to rule over all things. And so we know, however dark things might seem, right here, right now, there is a day of unbreakable light coming. And for now, for every follower of Jesus, we are to shine in that darkness. If you have the light of life, if you know Jesus Christ, then you and I are to be in this dark world a glimpse of the light that is coming. Where do we see it? Where do we see that glimpse of the light that is coming? We're to see it in this community, this gospel community, in the love that we have for one another, in the way that we can come from from a diverse range of backgrounds and come together and be one family together that cares for each other, that forgives each other, that reconciles with each other. There you see a glimpse of the light that's coming. In being a people that speak up for what is true, in being a people who do what is right, who speak up for injustice and who call out injustice. In these things, however weak we may feel we are, and however much we may feel we bang our heads against brick walls, we give a glimpse of the light that is coming. And that's what we're called to be. And this is the season, isn't it? This is the season where we have more opportunities than ever to speak about the hope we have, God's promised hope, which has come to us through the child who was born, the Son of God who was given. I love how this passage ends at the end of verse 7. All of this, it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is passionate about bringing this to reality. And he will. We see our weakness. Here Isaiah says, look at his strength. The Lord of hosts is literally the Lord of the armies. The Lord of the heavenly armies. He has the strength. He will do it. And he points us all to the child who was born. And says trust in him. And I pray that every one of us here today can say they've done that. That they're trusting in Jesus. That this promised hope 
is mine. Well, let's close by saying the words of the grace together and to one another, and then we'll be, our service will be finished. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen and amen. Thank you so much. God bless.